following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 18th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As you're getting settled, grab your Bible and make your way to Ezra chapter 3. We are going to be in this wonderful Old Testament book for a few more weeks as we make our way through it. And if you need to use the table of contents to find it again, go for it. That's fair. Everybody's getting settled. As everybody's coming in, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll just jump right into it this morning. I think we just need to go right to it. So let me pray for us, and then we'll just get right in. Father, we thank you again for this privilege that we have to be gathered together by your grace to hear from you in your word. Lord, we ask this morning that you would continue your faithfulness to yourself and you would use your word together with your spirit to continue to encourage us and equip us and train us in righteousness and godliness. We ask that you would do that this morning for your glory, for our joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to skip all the fun introduction and just jump right into Ezra chapter 3. So if you've got it open, let's start in verse 1. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. This is God's word to us this morning. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to stop and start a lot this morning, but I will stop and start right here. Because there's one phrase that I do want to draw your attention to here in verse 1, because the writer of Ezra writes it and puts this phrase here in a particular way and in a particular place in the Hebrew structure because it's meant to draw our attention. It's meant to be the point of emphasis that then kind of shapes and characterizes what we're going to read in the rest of chapter 3. And so I want you to notice something. When the writer says the people gathered together, what's the next phrase he uses? What's it say? As one man. That means something. There's an emphasis here that we're supposed to catch. What the writer is trying to communicate to us is that when God's people left their homes, the towns they had just come back to, and they come up to Jerusalem, they're coming up and gathering together with a singular purpose. They're not divided in expectation. They're not divided in mission. They're not divided in purpose. They're not divided in passion. There is a singular purpose, a singular passion, a common bond that unites them. The writer wants us to notice this unity amongst God's people. And before we delve too deep into what it is that unites them and how it's reflected in the chapter, I just want you to notice that this is something common to God's people throughout all of time. When God's people are united as one man to bear witness to the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, the possibilities of what God may do in them and through them are incalculable. This same reality is picked up on in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. I mean, even in the letter he writes to the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 1, in verse 27, Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving. Now, some of your translations will say side by side. Some of your translations will say striving as one man for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm, striving forward as one unified in Christ. What God does and what God can do in and through his people that are together as one in his son, unified in passion and in purpose, is utterly incalculable. The writer of Ezra 3 wants us to understand this unity that was present amongst God's people when they gathered because it's going to shape what we understand for the rest of the chapter. So what was it that they were passionate about? What was the common unity that was amongst them? What was the bond that they had together? What are they doing there together as one man? 
The very simple answer is worship. The worship of the one true God is the common passion, is the common bond, is the common goal, is the thing they gather together to do as one man. But I'll be honest with you, as a pastor in the 21st century, just saying that their passion together was the worship of the one true God still causes tons of confusion for people. Because we've taken that idea and even that word, language matters, we've taken that word and we've attached it to anything and everything that we want to try to put some kind of connection or significance to so that in the confusion of the contemporary Christian church, we can talk about a gathering that is a worship gathering and a gathering that might not be a worship gathering. Music that might be worship music and then music that must not be by implication worship music. We've taken some of these things and we've used them in ways that don't add or enhance their clarity. They actually muddy what they mean. So that's an entirely different sermon series altogether. I would encourage you to go and read Unceasing Worship by Harold Best or Rhythms of Grace by Mike Cosper. And they they deal with this reality of how we've taken this idea and the reality of worship and and shifted it around to make it less clear. But here's what I want you to understand. In, In the united common bond and passion of God's people as one man to worship the one true God, what that means is that they were together in passion, in unity, in desire to ascribe to God the worth that he rightly deserves. That's what worship means. It's to ascribe to something the worth that you believe it deserves. So Ezra chapter three is a picture of God's people together, motivated, passionate to see in their life and through their life God ascribed the worth that he rightly deserves. And so what we're going to do is we're going to live in the next nine verses, so to speak, for the majority of our time together. And I'm going to read verses two through 10 right now for you. And as I read them and you think about this unified, passionate desire to see the worth that God rightly deserves ascribed to him in and through their life, I want you to think, if you can, of what What adjectives or what descriptors might characterize the worship of God that we see here in Ezra chapter 3? And and if you get distracted listening while you're trying to think, don't worry, I'm going to give you some, I think, work. I'm going to help you out with it, all right? So let me read. I want you to hear, and then we'll go back and kind of look. Ezra chapter 3, let's pick up in verse 2. Then arose Joshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had received from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah together, supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Ahinadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. All right, stop there. We're going to live here for the next little bit. What words, what phrases, what adjectives? I'm struggling for the grammar on this here. How would you characterize 
the worship that God's people here offer to the Lord? How would you characterize their desire to ascribe to God the worth in them and through them and from them that he rightly deserves? Well, the first word that I would offer up for you, the first word that I would say would characterize it in total is obedient. I wanted to say faithful, but the more I thought about it, faithfulness didn't completely capture the specificity of what you see here. Their worship, their desire to ascribe to God the worth he deserved first and foremost was obedient. Watch this in verse two. Everything they were doing, it says they were doing according to the law. Certain phrases are going to be repeated for the next seven verses. In verse four, something similar is going to be said. They were doing what they were doing as it is written, as it is required. Verse 10, even the songs they offer up were according to David. If you go back and look at verse three, you can read about it later this week. When it says they set the altar in its place, what it means is they determined from God's word where God had said to Solomon the altar was specifically supposed to go on the land that God said he was supposed to build the first temple on. They figured out where that was now in the ruined temple and put the altar right there. As God had said. When they returned from exile back to Jerusalem, They wanted to be people of God's word. Now, for some of you, that might not sound like it's novel or unique when you're talking about God's people, but let's be honest about their story up to this point. If you read their story up to this point and the story of God's people, what you find over and over and over again is that in the face of God's faithfulness and provision, his care and protection of them to be their God, that they would be his people, they continued to return his graciousness with the desire to do whatever seemed right in their own eyes. This is why I love the Old Testament. If you ever wonder why we spend so much time in the Old Testament, It's one, because it is the counsel of God. We want to hear from all of it. But two, because the more I read it, the more I see myself. In the face of God's continued faithfulness, the story of God's people up to this point is the story of them continuing to want to do what seems right in their own eyes. And it has only landed them in deeper and deeper pits, in exile, in Babylon, for the last 70 years. So now they're back. And what we see describing or characterizing their desire for God to be ascribed the worth that he deserves is that he would be worshiped the way that he has demanded. That he would be worshiped the way that he has commanded. They want to be about the business of obedience. The more I thought about it this week, and thought about their desire to want to be obedient to what God has said and how with their life they ascribe to him worth. I had to ask myself just in reflection, am I willing with my life to do what I know to be true according to God's word? I had to ask myself, just going through it, just watching, watching God's people here in Ezra 3. I mean, they've gone through one of the most significant and difficult periods in the history of God's people. They've been in exile. And isn't it like the kindness and graciousness of God to use difficult times and difficult seasons, painful times, even times of suffering and times of change, even times of great blessing, but that are new to us. Isn't it like God to use these moments to bring us to a place of renewed clarity about what we want our life to be about? Isn't it like him to take those times and to help us refine our hearts to determine what it is we want to be about and what the priorities of our heart are? So they come back and they want to be people of obedience and I've had to reflect, am I willing then to do what I know to be true according to God's word? Do I really believe that everything that God says in his word is true? Do I personally believe that everything that God affirms in his word, I ought to affirm? Do I really believe that everything that God says in his word is sufficient for my life and my growth in godliness? And as I thought about it and and wrestled with the honesty and the reality of my own heart, 
As I thought about God's people and I thought about the church, I thought about all the times in my life in the past and even in conversations with people now, we talk about this and we think about obedience and we think about what God has shown us in his word. And the first thing that comes to our mind is, well, you get to do it for a living. I've got a real job. I don't really know what God says about this and I don't know what God says about that. But you and I have a lifetime as God would give us breath to learn more as to who he is and how our lives are surrendered to the reality of what he says. But let's just be really honest. In this day and age, if you've gathered here at all before, if you've ever found yourself in a gathering of God's people before, really, if you've lived the majority of your life in this country, you have been exposed to the majority of the things that God calls of his people. You've been exposed to the most significant, the most vital realities that God has called his people to in his word. I mean, you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, aren't you? Is that a new thing? If you've been to a wedding, at some point in your life, you have heard someone stand up and open God's word and read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You've heard the depiction of God's understanding of what love really is. You're aware that it's gossip that ultimately destroys intimacy between people, that breaks down the unity that God creates. You've understood that it's the desire for money, it's greed that ultimately erodes the soul. You've been familiar with God's stories from his word. The majority of you are familiar with stories like the prodigal son, and you've heard and you've understood that self-righteousness is just as deadly as sinful disregard. Here's the thing I was forced to deal with in reflection of my own heart, my own life, leading up to this point and thinking about all of us together. God has made us aware of that which is most significant and most vital in obedience to him. The question is, and I don't remember who said it first, I think it was Kevin DeYoung, the question is, are we going to submit to it out of our understanding of who he is, or are we gonna try to figure out how we're gonna skate around it? How do we respond to what we know to be true of God's word? Do we submit, or do we try to skate? God's people find themselves back in the land that God has promised because of his faithfulness to his word and to his promise and to his people. And they have a renewed sense of a desire that they want their lives to be obedient to what God has said. They want to ascribe to God the worth that he is due in the way that he has commanded. They don't just want to follow God's word. They also want to follow people who have followed God's word before them. You catch this when you read chapter three and you read it slowly. Much of chapter three, in particular verses seven through 10, were written in a deliberate way by the writer of Ezra to call to mind for those who would hear it read or who would, who would have heard it in those years after it was written. It would have called to mind the original building of the first temple back in Second Chronicles. How God had commanded his temple to be built and how Solomon went about in obedience doing what God had commanded. If you go back this week and read some of 2 Chronicles 2 and 3 and 5, you'll see almost the exact same structures repeated here in Ezra chapter 3 that were written of the first temple back in 2 Chronicles. When they returned, they wanted to be obedient to God's word, but they also wanted to do what God had commanded and follow the path of those who went before them who had done what God had commanded. As I thought about it this week, I thought, well, that's no trivial thing. That's a biblical imperative, a biblical principle that God gives us for our joy and his glory. God intends for you and I to find the kind of people today who live the joyful, obedient life that we desire to be reflected in our own life. We're called to find them, to look at them, and to imitate them. It's an aspect of the way that God has intended for us together to encourage one another and to grow in godliness and righteousness. Paul looked at the church and he wrote to the church very clearly, follow me as I follow Jesus, the writer of the letter to he the Hebrews, Hebrews 13, seven. Let me read this to you because this gets it even more clear just so you don't think I'm making this stuff up. Hebrews 13, seven. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Now, I went and looked this up so I won't lie to you. 
the way the writer of Hebrews uses that phrase and the term leaders there, he's not specifically referring in the church to what he established as elders and deacons. He's talking, in the mod- he modifies it here, to those who have spoken the word of God to you. Who's spoken the word of God to you? Are we called to speak the word of God to one another? Who has diligently and consistently encouraged you and built you up in God's word? The writer to Hebrews says, remember this person, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We're to consider how their faith, their confidence in God, in his promises, most clearly seen in his son, how their confidence in the gospel has shaped the way that they've made the decisions in their life so that you can see the ordinary faithfulness of their life producing the fruit of God's grace in the different relationships and circumstances they're in. You're supposed to find those people Recognize those people who have committed themselves to the encouragement of your heart by God's word and imitate them. It's an aspect of how God intends for us to grow. And here's the thing. It's not a foreign idea. It's not like God is now giving you something else to do. You realize we already do this. The world in which we live right now, the culture in which we live in right now is absolutely obsessed with being able to expose how we live and pay attention to how everybody else lives. That's what social media is. It's a platform for many to try to express the life they wish they actually lived and then to judge themselves by the life other people express that they live. We already look at people and either feel judged and less because we can't do what they do or we look at what they do and try to imitate what they do because whatever it is they're showing over here, we want some of it. God isn't giving us something new to do. He's saying you need to be very particular about whose life you're looking to imitate. Consider those who have encouraged you consistently and faithfully in the truth of God's word, that your faithfulness has grown. Look at the fruitfulness of their lives. Find those people. Imitate their faith. God's people returned back to the land that God had promised because of his faithfulness to them and the desire that they had that unified them was that in their life and through their life, the worth that God rightly deserved would be ascribed to him and they wanted to do it the way that he commanded. But don't make the mistake. Their obedience to God, it came with challenges. Don't think it was easy. I think even when I say one way to characterize what we see in chapter three as obedient, I think even obedient needs a modifier of some sense. I think you could say their obedience was a courageous obedience or a faith-filled obedience because it wasn't just obedience that looked like ticking a box off a list. It wasn't just some kind of cold obedience to a set of imperatives that they were supposed to do. This is what happens when we talk about obedience in the church. We often in our minds get this list that we think we're supposed to perform and we judge whether or not we've ticked everything off the box. That's not what's happening here. Something else is motivating this passion and this desire for their worship of God to be according to what he has said. And I wanna show it to you because I would be, hopefully it'll be encouraging to you. In verse one, look at verse one. It says, when the seventh month came, Right? You see that? Not making that up, right? Look down at verse 8. We're going to put these two things together. Verse 8 says, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. So, if you take the time markers in verse 1, and you take the time marker in verse 8, and you read it like a human, what you realize is that everything from verse 1 through verse 7 happened in the very first year that they returned to Jerusalem from captivity. Now, what was Jerusalem and what was the promised land like when they returned? Do you remember? We've talked about it in the past. It was destroyed. It was rubble. They did not return back to Jerusalem and find houses waiting for them with fires in the fireplace and pots on the fire and herds out in the fields and grapes on the vineyards. They didn't find that. What they found were destroyed homes, unkept fields, So they get into their hometowns, they get back to their land, and the first order of business is what? You've got to get your home straight. You've got to clear the land, ready the land, move the rubble, build the house, plant the vineyards, get the animals where they need to get. How long do you think it takes them to do that back then? It takes a while, right? The first year that they're there, 
still trying to get all of that straight out of a desire for God to be ascribed the worth that he deserves in obedience to what he commands, they have to leave their homes vacant and vulnerable and go to Jerusalem. Don't think that obedience is always easy. There was no ADP security system, no cameras on their front doors, no police patrols going through the neighborhood to make sure that everything that they had started to restore was going to be okay. They had to pack up Leave the home, leave the field, leave the vineyard vacant and vulnerable to get to Jerusalem that God might be worshipped. Friends, they were faced with the situation. This is what God's word says. Am I going to obey or am I going to find a way to justify and rationalize my disobedience? How easy would it have been for them to say, you know, what God would really want and be most glorified by is if I stayed here for the next year or so to make sure the vineyard was straight, make sure the fields were right. Because if I did that, I would more likely have more grapes and bigger harvests in the next year to be able to offer freely back to God. That's what he would want. He'd want me to stay over here, stay safe and do what I I need to do and want to do. He wouldn't want me obeying him in this thing right now. Are they going to obey or are they going to find a way to rationalize their disobedience? Friends, God's people had already learned the hard way through all of their attempts to live in a way that seemed right in their own eyes. All the ways that they had tried to rely upon themselves and their own wisdom, all the ways that they had tried to rationalize their disobedience, they had learned the hard way that all of that only ends up poorly. And so like Jim Hamilton says in his commentary on Ezra, they realized the safest place they could be is obediently worshiping God. The safest place they could be is in doing the very thing that God called them to do. And I want you to realize that when they made that journey from their homes, they're now out in their towns, like verse one says, when they make the journey from their homes to Jerusalem, they're not making that journey to get to the place where they can worship God. You've got to catch this. This will change some of your hearts and some of your lives and some of your minds forever. They were not trying to get from home to the place where they could worship God. Every single step they took from their home to Jerusalem was an act of ascribing to God the worth that he deserves as their protector and as their provider. Every step of obedience in the face of unknown circumstance, every step of obedience according to God's word from home to Jerusalem was an act of worship. They weren't trying to get to the place where they could finally worship, where the worship music would be played, where the worship sermon and the service would happen. Every single step of obedience is an act of ascribing to God the worth that he deserves as the faithful, gracious protector and provider of his people. See, every single joyful, faith-filled act of obedience to God's word in our lives are acts of worship. That's what Paul's getting after when he says we offer up ourselves as living sacrifices. When you read Ezra chapter three and you see that the first sacrifices they make on the altar were what we call burnt offerings, You can go read about those in Leviticus. Burnt offerings were a a set of offerings and sacrifices that God had put in place that were called offerings or sacrifices of consecration. The entire animal would have been devoured on the altar. It was the way that God had given his people to be able to say, I commit myself, my whole being to you, consecrated completely my whole life. You and I, in every act of joyful obedience to God's word, in the face of unknown circumstances, you realize it's going to be hard to obey God at times. His word and obedience to him is going to put you at odds with people around you at times. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Every single act of obedience is an act of ascribing to God the worth that he deserves. So what you've got in Ezra chapter 3 You've got a picture of God's people unified with a passion that God would be ascribed the worth that he is due 
the way that he has determined, in spite of whatever circumstances they might be in and in spite of whatever sacrifices it might call you to make. I mean, one sacrifice is obvious, leaving your home and trusting God for it. But you realize, again, read it like a human, where do you think all the animals for these offerings came from? Where do you think the oil to pay the Sidonians to get the trees came from? Where do you think the money, who do you think had the money offered up the free will offerings to be able to see the temple foundation established? God had provided for his people in exile. We saw that last week. They came back to Jerusalem with this blessing and provision that God had given them. And now to see him worshiped rightly as he commanded, they have to let go of those things that God had supplied. What you see in Ezra chapter three, just the first run is a picture of God's people unified by a passion to see in their life and through their life, God be ascribed the worth that he is due, the way that he is determined in spite of the circumstance and in spite of whatever sacrifice needs to be made. The first thing, the first way you could describe what you see here is obedient. Courageous, faith-filled obedience. But there's another word, a second word that I think is just as significant as the first one. If I had to pick a second word, and I will, I'll give it to you. I'd say that you could describe what you see here in chapter three, their, their worship of God. You could describe it as honest, as honest. I think it's probably a better word than honest. I just couldn't come up with it. I want you to watch this because this, this matters, and I, and I hope this is encouraging to you. Look at verse three. Verse three says that God's people set the altar in its place. Why? What's it say next? For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings unto the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. When you read about God's people being unified with one passion, that God be worshiped the way that he had commanded, singing songs of his steadfast love and, and faithfulness like we see in chapter three, glorifying God for bringing them back to the place that he had promised, do you expect to see fear listed as a motive for them doing what they're doing? I've told you before, if you ever come across an Old Testament book written by a man named Dale Ralph Davis, you need to get it. Davis did not write a commentary on Ezra, but he did teach a series of studies on Ezra that someone graciously sent me the transcripts of. And in talking about this in Ezra chapter three, Davis, he said, in our fears, and just think about what they must have been facing leaving their homes vacant, vulnerable, still not established. So much work to do, to be obedient to God, to come to Jerusalem. Just, just imagine that. In our fears, what better recourse can we have than going to God? Why shouldn't we take our fears to his altar? David said that God's people unashamedly assumed that God was their refuge. They were faithful and at the same time, they were fearful. And in their honesty before the Lord, that's okay. You realize that, right? Being faithful to God, joyfully faithful to God, doesn't mean you're not going to be afraid of things at times. We talk so much, and books are written now, there's so much language around the fear of man and the fear of things, so much so that we can almost begin to believe that courage is the absence of that fear. What we're trying to get to is to not have that fear at all. That's not true. It's going to take real courage to be obedient to God's word that he has be ascribed the glory and the worth that he is due in our life and through our life. But courage is in the absence of that fear. Courage is acting in the face of that fear. And this is what we see reflected in the lives of God's people. They had a courage that was born not out of a confidence in their army, not out of a confidence in their resources, not out of a confidence in their size, tiny, 42,000 people. They had a courage that was born out of a confidence in God's faithfulness in spite of themselves. And they were honest about it. And their worship of God reflects that honesty. And I'm tempted to stay there, but there's more honesty I want you to see because I think it will be helpful for you. There's, their honesty didn't extend to just 
owning and taking to God the fear they felt in spite of being obedient to him, there's another aspect of their honesty I want you to see. Just as fear can coexist with faithfulness, so can gladness and sorrow. Gladness and sorrow aren't opposed to each other in God's people ascribing to God the worth that he deserves. Watch this. Look at verse 11. God's people sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. So could you just, again, like a human, put yourself in the story. They had been in exile for 70-something years. Jerusalem destroyed, temple destroyed, never really thinking, left to themselves, they would ever be back there again. Now here they are because of God's faithfulness, not only back in the land, but the temple is being rebuilt. So God's faithfulness is being seen in their life practically in this being restored. And they respond singing songs of faithfulness to God, right? Gladness, joy. Watch verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites, heads of the father's houses, Old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. So it seems on the surface like there's a a minor key being struck in the story here, but That might not be the case. It all depends on how we understand the reason for the old heads in Israel weeping at the establishment of the temple foundation. What the writer tells us is that when they laid the foundation of the temple and the people celebrated because it was a physical representation of God's faithfulness to them being restored, those who had been in Jerusalem before the exile, the elders, the old men, the priests, the Levites, they had worshiped in Solomon's temple. They had taken their sacrifices there. They had seen it. And when the foundation for this second temple gets laid, they realize it's not going to be what it was. It's not going to be what I wish it were going to be. And they find themselves weeping. Now, that weeping can come from two places, and I will be playing armchair counselor to figure out where it's actually coming from. That weeping could come from a genuine disappointment because what they wanted first and foremost in their heart was not necessarily that God be ascribed the worth that he deserves through the system that he had established, but what they really wanted was the grandness of Solomon's temple. If that is what's causing the weeping, we can be in a dangerous place. When what we want amongst God's people is the grandness of something we may have experienced somewhere else, the way the music was done here, the way community was done here, the way this was done here, when what we want is the grandness of something else we've experienced, not so much the genuineness of what God's doing, that can be dangerous. Maybe that's what was happening. It doesn't tell us. But those tears of of genuine, honest disappointment, realizing that what they're building is not going to be what they had before. It wasn't going to be what it was. It's not going to be what they want it to be. It may not come from such a, such a misguided motive as the grandness of what they had. Imagine this. They're the ones who were there before the exile. They're the ones, the priests and the Levites who had served in that temple. When they see the second temple foundation being laid, recognizing that it's not necessarily as big as Solomon's, It doesn't tell us that that's why they wept. It says they wept when they saw the foundation being laid. Maybe the tears of disappointment are coming because those people particularly, more than anyone else who's come back from exile, those who have been there before remember very specifically why it is they're having to build this temple again. What happened to the first temple? It had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Why had the Babylonians destroyed the temple? Because God had given his people over to the Babylonians in captivity because of their sin. These old heads are the ones standing there more than anyone else who had been born in captivity and brought back. They had been there before. And at the sight of God's faithfulness, while there's rejoicing, while there's joy, while there's gladness, at the same time, there's sorrow because they know why they're having to do it again. They know so acutely the consequences of the sins of their people 
And while God is restoring back what their sin had lost, there's still tears that are gonna be shed. It's no different for you and I. You and I in our life on this earth face the consequences of our sinful decisions. Relationships are broken. Circumstances are damaged. Pain is born in our heart. There are times we think there is no way that God could ever restore back to its original state the relationship or the circumstance we find ourselves in. And then we find ourselves at some point seeing God actually bringing it back, restoring it. And there's gladness and there's joy, but at the same time, there's still tears. Because the consequences are still real. And the reality of what had to be restored because of what had been done is real. And God said it's not until the day when he returns and makes all things right that all the tears are going to be wiped away. Maybe it's not so much a minor key that's being struck in the story here. Maybe it's that these old heads of Israel are reminded anew of the consequences of the sin of God's people. And maybe by God's grace, even as they worship in their honesty, they're able to weep. And maybe by God's grace, these tears of disappointment could water in the hearts of God's people a renewed distaste and hatred for sin. A a power that is working to destroy us maybe these tears could water for you, for God's people, a renewed distaste for all that would seek to separate us from the faithfulness and graciousness of the one who has loved us. Their worship of God, their desire that God be ascribed what he is due, it wasn't put on, it was honest honest about what they would face to be obedient, honest about the reality of their need. You see it reflected in one more place, probably more clearly than anything else. I'm going to show you because this is the 11 o'clock. And I know you like it. Do you notice as you read chapter 3, maybe you noticed it when I was reading it. Go back and look this week. Did you notice the order of the way they restored things? Temple was destroyed. They're going back. They want to worship as God commanded. They begin to put to work the restoration project. What do they put back first? They put back the altar. The altar is the first thing they determine to restore. Why is that a big deal? Because God had said very clearly, without the shedding of blood, there would be no remission for sin. They knew from all that God had said to them, from all that God had revealed to him, he was indeed a God of justice. That he could not simply wink at their sin and be satisfied by them coming back and going, you know what, I'm actually sorry for what I did. They knew that someone or something had to pay the price for their transgression. The entire sacrificial system and temple system that God had installed for his people that was so crucial for their life would remind them over and over and over again of the blood that needed to be shed on their behalf. They would be reminded again of their sin, the need for God's justice, the distance that their sin created between them and God, the need for a sacrifice in their place. When they returned in their heart, They knew that what they needed most was atonement. You see, there had been no sacrifices in Babylon. No way for them, according to what God had put in place, to deal with their sin. Can you imagine that feeling? No way according to what God had prescribed for you to be able to deal with your sin. Every single one of you has a God-given conscience. You know what it is in your heart to transgress. You know that feeling. You know how easily we try to figure out in our own mind ways to deal with that. And we label it this, we blame this. Some try to become self-righteous, some become self-loathing. Whatever path we take to deal with that, what we all know is that in ourselves, we can't solve it. So where do you go to deal with it? This is what had been compounding for decades amongst God's people while they were in exile. 
And in their honesty, they knew that what they needed most was atonement. They needed that to be dealt with. So the first thing they do is they build an altar. Well, praise God on this side of the cross, God has been clear to us that we don't have to go and build that altar and bring that bull and bring that goat anymore. In fact, 1 John 1 verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's dishonest. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If anyone does sin, John says, I love how he's so kind and pastoral in that. When you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice for our sins. The writer of the book of Hebrews said in Hebrews 10, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, all the blood of all the animals, he said it's literally impossible for them to ever take away sin. But you and I, We've been sanctified, he said, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He said, when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God because it was done. And he said, for a single offering in Jesus, God has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified so that you and I, we have, he said, this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Jesus going into the presence of God, offering in our place for our sin as the perfect high priest, the final sufficient sacrifice for our sin. Before they laid the foundation of the temple, what they knew they needed most was for their sin to be dealt with, so they built an altar. For them to do that, it took courage, born out of God's demonstrated faithfulness for his people. That enabled them to own that what they needed most was to deal with their sin. And so they responded in obedience to the way that God had provided. The same is true with us. We need a sacrifice. We need a substitute. We need atonement. We need Jesus. Our response to God of repentance and faith, it takes the exact same courage, born from the same confidence in God's faithfulness, and it's as much an act of faith-filled worth ascribing worship as anything else. God has made a way for us to deal with our sin. He has provided the sufficient sacrifice in his son. And he has called us to repent of our sin and place our confidence in his work on our behalf. The question we all have is, are we going to surrender to what we know to be true about God's word? Or are you going to keep trying to skate around it and find some other way to try to deal with it? Friends, this morning, as we prepare as a people to respond to God's word, as the musicians come up and get ready to play, as we get ready to receive communion, I just want to remind you that it's no small thing when God's people came back to Jerusalem that the first time they gather together, the writer says, is in the seventh month. See, two of the most significant festivals that God had given his people occurred in the seventh month of the year. One was the festival of Passover, where they would together remember God's gracious deliverance out of slavery. Right on the heels of Passover would be what we read here in Ezra 3, the festival of booths. There, during that festival, they would be reminded of God's gracious faithfulness to provide for them while they were in the wilderness. God gave them tangible, physical, visceral reminders that his gracious faithfulness and care for his people, what he had done in the past, he would continue to do in the present, and he had promised to do in the future. 
These festivals and sacrifices would be played over and over and over again and a groove would be worn in their heart that would play the song of his grace and faithfulness in their life year after year. And that song came to a climax in the person and work of his son. Scholars will say that God accomplished salvation in Jesus in a way that fulfilled all the festivals, all the system of sacrifices, and all the ministry of the temple. And like he gave his people then physical reminders of it, he continues to give us a physical reminder of grace and faithfulness that continues to wear the groove of the song of his grace into our heart. The night before Jesus would offer his life as a sacrifice in our place for our sins, he shared a Passover meal with his disciples, seventh month of the year, same month we see in Ezra chapter three. And in that meal and on that night, he instituted for us a perpetual reminder of God's gracious faithfulness Luke records it this way. Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. See, every time we gather together and we hear from God's word, we're reminded of his faithfulness and we respond to his word as we receive communion. We're reminded again physically and viscerally of our sin that necessitated the sacrifice of his son in our place for our forgiveness. And the groove of the song of his grace is driven deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts. Friends, Ezra chapter three seems like an old story, but it's our story. It's the story of our people. And more importantly, it's the story of the faithful graciousness and steadfast love of our God. And this morning together, we are going to have the opportunity to respond to him. So I'm going to pray. We're gonna give you a couple of moments to reflect on God's word. Then together as God's people, we're gonna receive communion together, sing and be sent out from this place. So let me pray for us and we'll continue to respond. Father, we thank you. We thank you that in your word, you've provided all that we need, all that is sufficient for life, for godliness, for training, for growing, for maturity, for our lives being living sacrifices that ascribe to you the worth that you deserve. But we need you by your Holy Spirit to do the miracle of our heart of bringing us to a place of surrender, surrender to your word that we might respond courageously out of confidence in your faithfulness. Lord, we wanna be a people obedient to you, honest with you, that you would be glorified in us and through us. We ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.